HEC Breakthroughs. A knowledge at HEC Podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome to HEC Breakthroughs, your monthly podcast by the Knowledge at HEC team. Breakthroughs brings you the best of HEC Paris's academic research from professors and PhD students. We show how this research relates to and impacts on the challenges our world is facing. I'm Daniel Brown, the school's chief editor. Today's Breakthroughs puts the spotlight on the research of... Hello, I'm Dr. Shahina Janjuha Jivraj, Associate Professor in Gender Diversity and Entrepreneurial Leadership at HEC Paris Business School based in Qatar. If you want a taste of freedom, keep going. Thank you so much. Loud applause for U.S. activist Latosha Brown. She was one of 93 speakers at the 2021 Women's Forum Global Meeting. That was held in Paris last month. Amongst these often brilliant orators was Shahina Janjuha Jivraj. She's the HEC Associate Professor in Gender Diversity and Entrepreneurial Leadership based in Qatar. The Women's Forum was the perfect occasion to catch up with a British academic to explore her work on leadership and diversity. Shahina joined the school's Qatar campus just as her third book, Future Proof Your Career, was published. This is the latest in a long line of research publications on what she coins cognitive diversity. We kick-started our half-hour exchange by asking the researcher to define this concept. So I started off my career looking at or teaching entrepreneurship and really helping students to think about developing an entrepreneurial mindset, which at that time was quite groundbreaking. It's, it's something we're much more familiar with now. And it dawned on me that actually, really, when you think about what underpins creativity, it's diversity. And it's that that forcing your brain to think differently, to to really understand a different perspective that leads to innovation. So um, that's the reason why I actually started to get involved in the diversity space. Now, when we talk about diversity, we've got lots of layers. We can look at it from a gender perspective, a race, ethnicity, religious, sexual, sexual orientation, so on and so forth. But ultimately, what really makes a difference is when you bundle all those lived experiences and you're working with people who bring their lived experiences and you start connecting and you start challenging each other and challenge assumptions. And over the last decade or so, I've seen that we can get very caught up on should we be looking at gender or should we be looking at race or should we be looking at something else, when really what we need to start focusing on is cognitive diversity because that's where you get innovation, that's where you get really fantastic ideas and new thinking. And statistics consistently show that uh, gender-diverse teams uh, provoke an average profitability of, uh, well, 25%. uh, uh, Plus, I see another one which shows that innovation revenue goes up by 38%. So how does your research explain the reticence of leaders and leaderships and major companies in adopting, creating gender diverse teams when profit is actually, and the bottom line is actually quite uh, pink and rosy. If we think about what we're, what we're doing here, when we talk about gender diversity, we're asking leaders to shift generations, if not centuries of behavior. And that doesn't happen overnight. When we're asking people to change the way they do things, that requires resources. So not just in terms of um, 
financial resources, but actually human resources, emotional resources, expectations, and sometimes that's far greater than financial. So we need to be very, very clear, especially around businesses, that yes, this is absolutely the right thing to do, that there's no question about it, but from a business perspective, the amount of resource that's going into it needs to generate a better return on investment because businesses are accountable to their shareholders, to their customers, to, to wider stakeholders. Now, the data that you've quoted, and there is, there's a raft of data coming through that still speaks to the fact businesses with gender diversity do perform better. And actually what we're seeing over time, as businesses get better with gender diversity, their performance continues to increase. But 10 years ago, it was very difficult for businesses to actually consider moving into a gender diverse <coughs> space. And part of the challenge was that um, as much as we like to talk about being innovative and doing things differently, emotionally we actually find change very I difficult. Like to know what he has that I don't. Let's just say some jobs require a suit, not a skirt. So that's what this is about? You gave him a promotion because he's a man? I would be very careful if I were you. Unless you want to get written up again, or even worse, fired. So you then start to bring the data into it, having worked with engineering firms, science-based companies, finance-based yeah. companies, even if the CEO or the head of transformation or the head of HR recognized that gender diversity was important, the only way I've been able to get that change is when you talk about the data, when you talk about the figures. So that's the first piece. The second piece then, the reticence, again, change like this takes time. And it, it's about building a community. It, this isn't, we, we often talk about gender diversity, it's not a silver bullet approach. And 10 years ago, when we first started working in this space, people thought, well, if you run a leadership program for women, you'd fix the women. And of course, the, the idea is it's not about the women needing to be fixed, it's about the organization needing to be fixed and a whole transformation going on. So as leaders start to step up and start talking about what they're doing, that creates collective peer pressure on other leaders and that starts to build the momentum around this. So it, it's a combination of things. You need the data, but you also then need peer pressure. And peer pressure of leaders has been absolutely powerful in terms of moving things forward. Shahina, um, the diversity is one of three keys to innovation that you focus on. The others being nurtured cultures and uh, inclusive leadership, um, this innovation triangle. Could you elaborate on the other two pillars? Yeah. So I talk about the innovation triangle and it again comes back to why I entered the world of diversity because I started with the piece about um, innovative mindsets. When, when we think about what you need in order to, to really be innovative, you need diverse teams. So when we have leaders saying we need to build innovation in our companies, it's not like a switch you can just turn on. And actually what we're now seeing, companies really start to have to sweat their assets in terms of human capital because they've spent so much time, money, resources and effort in building diverse teams and it's now about using that conscious leadership to build inclusive leadership. And at the moment we talk a lot about inclusive leadership because that's what should start to encourage trust, it should encourage creativity and, and lead to innovation. Eventually, I hope we'll stop talking about inclusive uh, leadership and we'll be talking about pluralistic leadership. Hello to all, and thank you for joining our webinar today. I am Anne Michaud, Associate Dean for Pedagogy at HEC Paris. Today, it is my greatest pleasure to welcome Professor Shahina 
Janjuha Jivraj from HEC Paris in Qatar. Shahina is an expert in the field of gender diversity in leadership. Without further ado, floor is yours, Shahina. Thank you. Thank you, Anne. Thank you so much for that warm introduction. And this is a really interesting topic because it brings together some really big areas that are up front and center for most organizations at the moment. AI, technology, HR, and how these three areas collide. Often we find women are not part of these task forces. And, and sometimes leaders will say, well, you know, the, the women don't come forward. Maybe they're not bothered. Maybe they don't know enough about the area. But if their input is missing, you're losing that fundamental aspect of AI. So as a leader, one of the things I'd encourage you to recognize is if women hesitate to step up, it may actually be because their experience before has been that they haven't been valued, or it may be that they haven't been heard in the dialogue. And another thing that's uh, essential is women leaders as role models. And so uh, you, you focus on that as well in your research to help uh, adjust how we see successful teams. And it's not easy uh, because it relies, as you've said earlier, on changing mindsets and providing resources to support uh, women. Could you elaborate on these uh, these challenges? We see that there are lots of interventions that are put into place to support women. And there is still a narrative that, well, we have X, Y, and Z, we have jobs advertised, we have role stretch opportunities, and women don't step up. And we need to recognize that, uh, and again, this comes from research carried out across uh, 53 countries. When, when women don't step up, it's not because they don't trust themselves, it's not because they're ambivalent, it's because they don't trust the system. So the, the changing mindsets, there is something about um, ensuring that the environment is much more transparent so that women feel safe in actually coming forward. It's not that they're risk averse, they just do not trust the system. But at the same time, we also know that role models are hugely powerful in empowering women to say, if she can do it, then I have a chance of doing it. And we, we still need much, 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 much more diversity of role models. We need diversity of role models in, in every shape and size in terms of sectors so that whether a man or a woman is talking about female leadership, they don't resort to the top four or five role models that might seem accessible to 10% of the women, but actually can pick from a whole host of female role models that anybody can actually feel is, is related to them. And one example I want to share with this, um, many years ago there was a, a, a campaign that was uh, looking at female scientists and huge posters were spread across the UK with female scientists to really encourage girls to move into STEM subjects and carry on studying at school. And what was interesting, although it was such a high profile campaign, it actually didn't achieve what it set out to achieve because so many schoolgirls responded by saying, science is okay, but and that, that post is great, but that's not for someone like me. So we have to shift from moving from um, the poster girl campaigns to actually having more and more role models that are diverse and that are accessible and realistic so they're not just aspirational. Do you have a couple of examples uh, that incarnate this, uh, women who are really understanding this and have inspired um, young students, uh, women students, to, to adopt STEM subjects or, or careers that normally are the reserve of men in the cliched world that we live in? Well, actually, I co-authored a book in 2018 with Lady Kitty Chisholm, who um, is a good friend and also we do a lot of work together in the diversity and inclusion space. 
And we did work looking at um, leadership across uh, women in, in 53 different countries. And we wanted to profile a, a broad cross-section of women, but we were very clear that we didn't want the typical women that had been profiled on in the national media and press and so on and so forth. So we, we went out and used networks to find women that were just genuinely interesting for us. So, for example, we, we had the case study of somebody who was born in a village in Botswana and went on to become the CEO of the largest life insurance company in the country. And that social transformation and what she'd achieved with that role was absolutely amazing um, so I think it's it's not always so much the kind of big names that everybody automatically recognizes and again what this was one of the really big things that came out from the book for us every woman we spoke to about role models talked about a parent whether it was a mother or a father and a teacher and somebody early stage in their career a leader who saw potential in them and and um or actually saw the potential before they saw it for themselves and started to champion them. And this is where the championing notion came in. But um, it, it's not always about the big business, business recognizable names. No, it's these often the unsung heroines. Exactly. In a recent Forbes article, and you, you contribute regularly to this magazine, you call for a new approach to uh, feminism to answer the new realities that COVID-19 and its economic consequences have provoked and you give the example of 13 million women have lost work in the last two years while the men have regained more or less the same pre-pandemic uh, figures could you elaborate on this idea of a, a, a new approach to a new form of feminism i was reading the book by helen lewis called difficult women and in the book uh, she ends up by talking about the fourth wave of feminism because she beautifully describes each wave of feminism and the historical perspective but also class differences race differences and what is not always recognized in feminist literature and I had the immense opportunity to speak to Helen for the Forbes article you've mentioned and she had written the book before COVID so of course for me now when you think about the pandemic the pandemic has fast-tracked what this new wave of feminism needs to look like it's not something that will emerge over the next five or ten years it's, it's the responses to the pandemic right now so when we talk about the impact of the pandemic um, in delaying progress actually setting us backwards there are some really big 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 discussions that governments and organizations are having so governments taking more responsibility around the social needs working more closely with civil society to actually fill those gaps and address those inequalities that are predominantly borne by women having far far more constructive conversations about unpaid work and what that looks like about women's health in the workplace um, and also challenging some of the assumptions around class structures so it's not just about you know having conversations at a certain class level but really starting to bed down that this is about activism and it's about working together collectively to bring the discussion about women's economic activity right at, right at the table and to keep it there. And now it's time for action. Because the reality is that billions of women still do not have the chance that we have. And they need us to act for them. I'm Gabrielle Heilbrunner, member of the Women's Forum Directory. I would also like to acknowledge the extraordinary persistence of women across the world. We have continued to lead, despite the pandemic, the conflicts and the extreme weather events that have shaken our world this past year. We have collectively kept this show on the road and these issues on top of the agenda. 
So let me finish with two. So look, difficult women. Who is it that made you choose that title? Christiane Amanpour interviewing Helen Lewis after the publication of her 2020 book, Difficult Women. Well, actually, it was a, a male friend who suggested it to me because it happened around the time that, if you remember, Theresa May was then Prime Minister, was described by Ken Clark, who had been in, in her cabinet, as a bloody difficult woman. And he actually, he meant that kind of admiringly. But I think it's a, it's a double-edged sword, isn't it, the idea of being difficult as a woman? It means that you're probably going to get a lot of stuff done, but people aren't going to like you necessarily for it. OK, so that is really, really fascinating. And you quote uh, Helen Lewis when she says we're at a tipping point and companies know that they have to be on board with uh, the social movements uh, that you describe. How does your research corroborate that uh, vision of it being really a turning point? Over the last few years, we have had some really, really big social movements. So if we think a few years ago, too, we had Me Too, we've had Black Lives Matter, we've had uh, environmental factors which have been bubbling away. And these are no longer seen as, as issues on the sidelines for companies. 10, 15 years ago, we were talking about CSR and corporate social responsibility. We're now talking about ESGs, we're talking about diversity, and they're completely embedded within the core of businesses. And... I think there are a couple of things that have really started to happen. First of all, companies can't afford to be silent. If we think about Black Lives Matter, we saw such an uproar where companies were trying or felt they were doing the right thing by showing alignment with Black Lives Matter, but actually their practices were were completely inconsistent with the agenda. We're certainly seeing that with the environmental factor now. And I actually think the diversity and inclusion agenda has been hugely powerful because a big piece about diversity and inclusion in the workplace is about being your whole self, bringing your authentic self to work. And that's everything, what matters to you, what you're, what you're passionate about beyond work, what, what are the voluntary causes that you support. When you create space to bring that into the workplace, it then becomes very difficult to say to work colleagues, well, we'll only take the causes that are acceptable to us or that are trendy or favourable to us. You have to take the whole package. And what we're seeing is, is organisations also having to get used to, to creating space for activism. Again, there is a bit of a challenge here. There's a dilemma from a leadership perspective. What do you give space to? It's again, you can't switch these things on and off. Once you create that space, you can't pull it back again. But you also need to manage it. And we talk about this from a, from a leadership perspective in, in our book, Future Proofing Your Career. But we also talk about it from a career perspective. You need to think about what you're bringing into the workspace, what you're giving visibility to, and, and, and really importantly, how you're articulating it. There is no choice but to move forward this way. But, and this is sort of my warning around it, it needs to be handled responsibly and it also needs to be handled with, um, with maturity and accountability. HEC Breakthroughs, a knowledge at HEC podcast. Let's turn to your third and latest book, Shahina Janjuja Jivraj, and that is Future Proof for Your Careers. It was co-written with Dr. Naima Pasha, who is the head of careers at Henley Business School near Reading in England. In it, you underline the point of the rise of social change and activism in the workplace. How is this changing the equation for leaders, this grassroots movement or energy? I think um, activism in the workplace is is this whole new wave that is coming up very quickly, and I don't think there's enough attention being paid to it yet. I think it's been bubbling away. So when we think about uh, the impact of social change, the big movements we've just talked about, whether it's Black Lives Matter, Me Too, so on, environmental issues, once you start to open these areas, other areas also start to come up, because then it's, well, if you're looking at the environment 
or, or gender, why are you not looking at other areas as well? And, and um, at some point, it, it, you know, leaders need to understand that where you create space for colleagues to come in and, and bring the, that thinking into the workplace, it, it is about allowing colleagues to be their whole authentic self at work. For leaders, it will be so much more about thinking around the ethical frameworks around which they work. It, it's a lot about purpose, bringing, you know, what purposeful work looks like. We're having these big, almost quite intellectual conversations at the moment about purposeful leadership and working with purpose. But actually, when you start to drill that down at an individual level, making a difference, what does that difference mean to me if for me, I'm really passionate about literacy, say, and, and children, and that's not reflected in my day-to-day -day work. And, and I think what we're starting to see is a more fundamental shift away from some of the more superficial projects where it may be going into a park and re picking up recycling or cleaning up rubbish to things which, which, again, are very important things, but actually things that become much more sustainable in creating human connections. Now, that all takes time, and it needs thinking. And again, it's it's peer pressure coming in because as companies start to do it and talk about it, others recognize they need to do it. But the other piece as well is more and more, um, it's about listening to the next generation, the, just listening to what's coming through, what matters to them, and actually having those open conversations, the passion that comes through when they talk about what matters to them, because that will help leaders understand what's the next thing that's likely to hit their organization, what behaviors they need to be thinking about what trends they need to be picking on. But equally importantly, we're seeing that more and more of the next generation are not just looking at companies in terms of what the pay packet is, what, what the perks are, they're looking at the ethos and the ethics of the business. If you haven't got that aligned, then actually the chances are you're missing amazing talent because no matter how hard you try, they, they will not be attracted to your company. I will rise. A time's up evening on the power of women's anger in New York. Knocked out, gut punched, a screaming burst, screaming injustice, screaming what about us, screaming we are here, screaming look me in the eye, screaming it doesn't matter, screaming why, screaming I can't, screaming I must. The law cannot do it for us. We must do it for ourselves. Women in this country must become revolutionaries. Shahina, this is your, your third book. Uh, the two others are Succession in Asian Family Firms, um, which is based on your research in Britain, and Championing Women Leaders. For you, what are the common threads that bring these three works together? When I think about my career, I've sort of dotted around and moved around lots of different areas. And I started off with uh, my PhD looking at uh, leadership and, and management within family businesses. I didn't realize at the time that um, I would end up looking at the role of women in family businesses. And that's where the main publications from my PhD came out. And that really set the scene for me to understand more about the gender perspective in different types of organizations. So within the family business book, talking about the role of mothers, the influence they had despite not being in a formal position within those firms and then building on that subsequently with the work around women in leadership the championing piece and again there some again something very similar in the sense that um, there had been a lot of research coming out and there has been a lot of research looking at sponsorship for women which is a very specific way of, of promoting women into leadership which serves you very well predominantly in the western part of the world 
um, and for certain groups of women, but not universally. And so from with the championing women piece, we actually shifted responsibility to senior men and recognizing their responsibility to create and find opportunities to pull women forward and to advocate for those women and to think about their whole being, not just the ones who are shouting the loudest or the ones who are right in front of them, but really getting to know that high potential group of women coming forward. And we've seen this work time and again, all sorts of different organizations. And again, there it's about the power, the power men have to create an environment to bring more women into leadership roles. Folks, I'm Craig Newmark. I'm the founder and customer service rep of Craigslist. And I'm just going to talk for a few moments on why I feel that men must lean in to support women's leadership. When I see women running things, things usually work really well. I think that women's leadership might be the key to locking, unlocking progress in both government and the business world. You know, even though women make just 3% of Fortune 500 CEOs, there's some studies from McKinsey which shows that Americans' GDP is now 25% higher than it would have been without women. All of it's because of women's work in the marketplace. There's also a Goldman Sachs study which argues that eliminating the gap between male and female employment rates could boast GDP in America by a total of 9%, in the Eurozone by about 13%, and in Japan by about 16%. As a teacher at HEC, uh, what role would you say the business schools and education in general has in this equation uh, in terms of progress uh, into leadership for, for women? It's such a privilege to be working in a business school. I, you know, it's, it's one of those jobs that's an absolute dream job because you get to be in a room full of future leaders and you get to do that on a regular basis, whether it's in France, whether it's in Qatar, whether it's in the UK or wherever. And... You don't always have to go in with an agenda, but what I have found in my experience, just by the fact that people know you're working in this space and you start mentioning bits about it in just a different perspective, before you know it, the conversation really bubbles up. And I have been in any part of the world where I'm teaching and talking about this, and it's even now more recently with my role in Qatar, the conversations are so rich. Again, I'm not having to explain why we need to do this. The conversation is, how do we make it better for ourselves as leaders, whether we're male or female students? So I think our responsibility is actually, as always, as to be a good teacher, it's about listening well. Mm. It's about listening with curiosity, and it's about listening to the questions that are coming forward. And I think it's also not about being prescriptive in answers. It's not about saying you must do it this way, but actually empowering the students to, to recognize they've got the ability to find the solutions. That's where the creativity, the entrepreneurial leadership kicks in, because if they recognize they're empowered to have the solutions, then they'll keep that going in their leadership journey as they progress. Shahina, you write about pluralistic leadership, which is a new concept and theory. Can you elaborate on what, for you, in your research, pluralistic uh, leadership means? When we talk about inclusive leadership, the intention is about including everyone. But if we think about the core of inclusion, the word itself, it's actually to enclose. And if we think about what enclosing does, it shuts people down. So the idea then is, um, you know, if we take it to its logical consequence, you bring in someone who is different, but you tolerate their differences, as long as they fulfill what you want them to achieve. 
And that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to achieve the cognitive diversity and that, that level of innovation we've talked about. So we need to start shifting our mindsets towards pluralistic leadership because pluralistic leadership is about recognizing the differences that everybody brings. And this is a really different set of skills that leaders need to have because it means they've got to understand their teams. It means they've got to create a very safe space for their teams. And the way I often describe this, in the diversity and inclusion space, there is always this saying that um, diversity is asking someone to the party, inclusion is asking them to dance. For me, pluralism is asking to be taught their dance as well as teaching them your dance. Mm. And when we get to that point, that's when we see real innovation. A final word about your ongoing research at the moment, Shaheena. The area that I'm really interested in is um, this idea about entrepreneurial leadership. Because the more I do my research and consider the characteristics and the behaviors about entrepreneurial mindsets and leadership, it is so aligned to the strengths of female leadership. And I'm really keen to keep developing research and looking at that area because at some level, I think we will find a more unified approach towards leadership. So we will stop talking about male and female leadership, but talk about leadership that encourages even greater creativity, that is really builds on being much more human-centric um, and, and really allows for much more international cult cultural adaptation. So that's where my focus is, and it certainly builds on the work I've been doing over the last decade. Shahina Janjuha Chivraj, thank you very much. You're welcome. HEC Breakthroughs, a knowledge at HEC podcast. And Shahina's book, Future Proof Your Career, is published by Bloomsbury. The HEC academic has also recently published an article on the knowledge pages which explains why gender diversity needs to be at the heart of the innovation agenda. Both are must-reads. Well, that wraps up this HEC Breakthroughs. Tune in again next month when we discuss the multidisciplinary research at the new High Paris Centre. HEC academic David Restrepo teams up with Polytechnique researcher Mikalis Vazirjanis to explore the links between AI and judicial judgments. And it's not as dry as it might sound. Till then, why not look up some of our other podcasts on the Knowledge at HEC pages? I'm Daniel Brown, Chief Editor in the HEC Communications Department. Goodbye.